welcome to Desire Made Real, a Discovery of Witches podcast, the bonus episode. Mandy's not here, so I'm doing the intro. It's a little bit weird for me. <laughs> uh, I'm Caitlin, and if you listen to our season one episodes, you may have realized that someone was missing from our season two coverage. Hey! <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm Anya, professional biologist and amateur podcaster. Mandy and Kate invited me to join them last season because season one had a lot of genetics. This season has basically none, uh, but I didn't want to get left out of the fun completely until Matthew and Diana head back to the modern day in season three. So here I am. Uh, For this bonus episode, the two of us are going to talk some Elizabethan science and then have a sort of general chat about the first five episodes of the show so that Ani has a chance to just sort of fangirl with us, you know. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot to love about this season. There is. The first thing that I wanted to talk about is actually a little bit about genetics. Um, So we find out in episode four that blood rain... Blood range? Okay. (laughs) Excuse me. Sorry. Blood rage um, runs in the de Clermont family through Isabeau's line. Um, And Isabeau specifically talks about her and Marcus being carriers while Matthew um, actually exhibits the signs of disease. And so I wanted to just talk a little bit about um, recessive genetics and what it means to be a carrier. So in general, when people talk about being a carrier for a disease, they're referring to um, diseases that are caused by recessive genes. So what that means is that, you know, for most organisms, including humans, um, we have two copies of each chromosome and therefore each gene, Um, except for the sex chromosomes, but we're just ignoring that for now. And so gene forms of a gene are called alleles, right? So the gene is like the specific spot in the genome. And then the allele is like the flavor of gene that you happen to have. Um, And so alleles can be either recessive or dominant. So a dominant gene is one that you only need one copy to show that trait. A recessive gene is one where you need two copies to show that trait. Um, And, you know, it's called that because if you have one, uh, one copy of a recessive version of an allele, one copy of a dominant allele, the dominant one is the one that shows through. Okay. Right. Okay. If you have two copies of the recessive, you'll show the recessive. Two copies of the dominant, you'll show the dominant. But where, you know, that distinction is made is when you have one of each, which one gets showed up, gets, uh, becomes visible in your traits. That's like, so, uh, like eye color, right? Works the same Yeah, way. exactly. Right. So like right. blue eyes are recessive. So, you know, if two people with blue eyes have kids... All of their kids will have blue eyes because in order to show blue eyes, you have to have two copies of the blue eye allele. But two brown eyed people can have babies with blue eyes, right? Because they could each have one dominant copy of the brown allele and one recessive copy of the blue allele. If they both pass on the blue recessive copy to their kid, their kid could could end up with two blue alleles. Right. And then have blue eyes. Yeah. So that's normally how we think about recessive genetics and usually what that's what we mean when we say someone is a carrier for a disease they carry one recessive copy so they don't actually show the disease but then if they have offspring with someone else who also is a carrier if they both pass on the recessive carrier version of the gene then their offspring can actually um have the disease or like show visible disease symptoms Right. Okay. Okay. So that's like your standard version of what it means to be a carrier. That doesn't really make sense in terms of what we know about vampire genetics and how that's passed on, right? Because when you're, you don't have two vampire parents, right? I mean, like Matthew calls 
Isabeau mom and Philippe dad, but Philippe is not really his dad. Right. In the same way that Isabeau is his mom because she's the one that sired him. Important aside for people listening, uh, Anya, you've only read the first two books, correct? Yes. Okay. Just so Although, people who have read yeah. all three books know why we're not addressing a third book thing here. Okay. Yeah. Although actually it is funny because I think when I was listening to the first episode, the spoiler section was just books, book two stuff. And I was like, totally chill with that. And then the next spoiler, (laughs) you started talking about all sorts of crazy shit from book three. And I was like, no, 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 no. And then immediately turned it off, but it was too late, but it's fine. Um, We do warn people. (laughs) Yeah, you do. (laughs) I just thought I was safe anyway. I thought it was like book two spoilers. Anyway. So when I was first watching this part of the TV show, I was like annoyed that Isabeau used the word carrier because mm-hmm. I was like, you know, there's you can't really have recessive dominant interactions if there you only have one parent, right? Because if Isabeau is passing whatever vampireness she has onto Matthew, there's nothing else that can cover that up. But there is another way that you can have diseases shipping, shipping? Wow, uh, this phantom on the brain, skipping (laughs) generations without having dominant recessive interactions. And that's something called uh, incomplete penetrance. So what that means is that sometimes even if you have what would be considered a dominant gene, sometimes it just won't fully express itself for whatever reason. And so, yeah, geneticists call that incomplete penetrance. Um, And so it is actually consistent with what we know about genetics and biology that Isabeau could have the gene for blood rage, not exhibit blood rage, and then... You know, her offspring, Matthew, could show it, and then Matthew's offspring would not show it. You know, like, a real geneticist would not really call that being a carrier. They would just say, um, you know, the gene has incomplete penetrance. For some reason, it's expressed in some individuals, but not in others. Um, But they probably wouldn't use the word carrier, because carrier is typically reserved for talking about the recessive dominant interactions. Right. Question. When you say for some reason, like, are reasons known? And and they just, like, vary, so you're not getting into it, or? That's a really good question. This is not my academic area of expertise. Right. So I don't know for sure. Um, My guess would be it probably varies depending on the gene. Like, sometimes there's environmental triggers Mm -hmm. that can turn things on and off. Sometimes it's an age thing. So, you know, I can look into that before our next episode and have a better answer for you. Again, I think you will want to save the deep dive until season three. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe I'll table that for later then. Presuming that they keep close to the book. Okay. Which I'm assuming they will. They've done, I mean, aside from the fact that they did a lot of rearranging of the order of things, I think they've done a very good job of keeping with the spirit of the books. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I know you and Mandy already talked about this, but I, I'm also a huge fan of the way that they streamlined everything. And it's actually like pretty amazing the way that they kind of disassembled the book and then reassembled it in a completely different order, and yet somehow it works so well. And it still feels like the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's incredible. Actually, you know, my first time watching through the season... Mm. I felt it felt a little bit wrong because I had like just finished reading book two for the first time. Right. And my second time through the season, it felt so right because I think the TV show, you know, was more familiar than the book at that point. Mm-hmm. And and it just it it's flawless the way it all fits together. So great job, Bad Wolf. I agree. So since there wasn't a whole lot to talk about in terms of actual science and genetics, I thought I might talk a little bit about sewage. Everyone's favorite topic. Yeah, everyone's favorite topic. Um, Because, you know, in the first episode, Diana makes the remark that she thought, you know, cities smelled bad in the past all the time. And she was surprised by how fresh the air was. I think that's, um, you know, an idea that a lot of people have. And I actually know a little bit about the development of 
sewage processing and engineering um, because of an environmental science class that I took. So I went back and I found the book that we read for that class. It's called Water 4.0. It's by David Sedlak. Um, and chapter three is called Europe's Sewage Crisis and goes through um, kind of like the history of sewage technology uh, and engineering in London and Paris. And so I thought that might be fun or at least sort of shed some light on the disconnect between you know, what we think of old cities being like and um, how it's presented in the TV show. Okay, stop me if you're going to answer this throughout, but like, would the city have smelled bad or like, is the TV show just making it nice for us? Okay, so I don't, I can't answer that question with 100% certainty. Right. But I do know that- I mean, you didn't time walk back to 1590 for us for this episode? What the (laughs) heck, Anya? So, um, you know, the title of the book is called Europe's Sewage, or the title of the chapter is called Europe's Sewage Crisis. And the sewage crisis happened several hundred years after 1590. Um, So it's really in the 1800s. So I think when people think about old cities- being super smelly, they're thinking about that um, kind of like early industrial revolution time period when the cities actually did smell like shit. Okay. But we're not quite there yet. So I'm going to start start us out in the year 1276. So at this point, London had about 40 to 50,000 people. Crazy. Yeah. And they built a series of pipes from springs that were a few kilometers outside of the city and used that to pipe fresh water into the city. Um, and at this point, when you know there were only 40 to 50,000 people, these springs could supply enough water for the full city. Hmm. Fast forward to the year 1600. So I know I'm overshooting the book a little bit, but at this point, London had about 200,000 people. Um, and their water needs had increased quite a bit to the point that those local springs were no longer sufficient. Mm-hmm. So between 1609 and 1613, there's a private company that built something called the New River Canal to direct water from springs that were even farther away from the city, about 30 kilometers north. And so then at that point, this New River Canal was able to supply enough water for those 200,000 people. So this is happening, you know, right after the period that the book is set in. So you can imagine in 1590, they were probably like a little bit water stressed, um, but they did have piped water coming in that was available. And, you know, the, the city wasn't so big that they had a huge sewage problem. Right, okay. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward again to about 1720. At this point, London had about 600,000 people. And um, they, you know, at this point, the city was pretty water stressed again. And even the New River Canal couldn't supply enough water to the city. So private companies began taking water out of the Thames for drinking. Why? Which is mm-hmm. pretty gross. Like, okay, but my question with that one is, it's gross now. Would it have been gross back then? Yes. Okay, great. Um, because the city was actually dumping their sewage into the Thames oh. at this point. Okay, right. Yes, yeah. that makes much more sense. Yep. Um, and so interestingly, the previous pipes that had been used to bring in water from the springs to the north of the city, mm-hmm. um, they were all gravity powered because it was basically downhill into London. Right. Um, but the the new pipes um, that were taking water out of the Thames, they actually needed um, to be powered somehow. And so there were actually giant water wheels put on London Bridge that were there for um, hundreds of years or over 100 years. Interesting. Yeah, which is kind of funny because, you know, I mean, everyone, well, maybe not everyone, but I think London Bridge is pretty iconic. Most people have this, like, image of it and know how old it is, but we don't necessarily have this image of it having these huge water wheels on it. I mean, oh, well, I don't want to get technical, but London Bridge is actually the boring one, right? 
Oh, is it's it? The ta- it's the Tower Bridge that's iconic. Oh, okay. You're probably right. Yeah. Anyway, so so there's a quote in the book um, that I thought I would read out loud because um, it, it gives an idea for the quality of the water coming out of the Thames. Um, so this quote is from 1771 um, by a traveler to London. If I would drink the water, I must quaff the mawkish contents of an open aqueduct exposed to all manner of defilement, so he's referring to the New River Canal, or swallow that which comes from the Thames, impregnated with all the filth of London and Westminster. Human excrement is the least offensive part of the concrete, which is composed of all the drugs, minerals, and poisoned poisons used in mechanics and manufacture, enriched with the putrefying carcass of beasts and men, and mixed with the scourings of all the wash tubs, kennels, and common sewers within the bills of mortality. It's not very different than it is today. No. Um, And certainly not very refreshing sounding. Yeah. So in 1822, at this point, there are about 1.4 million people living in London. They removed the water wheels from London Bridge because turns out they were kind of dangerous for boats. Um, (laughs) And they moved the water intake um, from the middle of the river to the shore, um, where it was then powered by steam engines now that steam power was an option. Mm-hmm. And so during this period, as you might guess from that delightful quote, um, most rich people drank clean water from springs that they paid to have delivered to their houses, but they still use the piped Thames water for washing and starting in the 1850s for their water closets. Um, which became popular with wealthy people around that time. Um, And so once people started installing water closets in their house, um, they connected them to the sewer system, which then increased the amount of human waste going into the Thames. So yeah, the plus side is you don't have to use chamber pots or outhouses anymore. Downside, now that's all going directly into the Thames, um, even more than before. Wonderful. So this is... Yeah, so this is when it really, I think, starts to smell pretty bad. And also when cholera outbreaks started to become a problem, first in 1831 and then a second big cholera epidemic in 1848. It's interesting that the invention of water closets led to it being worse because you would think that it would be the other way around. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, it's the book wasn't super clear about what people were doing with all of the the waste in their chamber pots and outhouses. But I think somehow less of it was ending up in the river right. than with the water closets. Um, so the second cholera epidemic in 1848, um, you might be familiar with the story of Jon Snow. Not that Jon Snow. But he's a pretty famous figure in epidemiology um, because... You know, as this cholera epidemic was raging the city, he mapped out where all the cases were and then hypothesized that the cases were coming from this Broad Street water pump. There's a, and there's a really good episode of Sawbones about that if anybody wants full details. Yeah. So he basically he removed the pump handle so that people couldn't get water from that pump and had to go somewhere else. And then the cholera cases all stopped. And it basically... Uh, and then they were able to trace um, all of those cholera infections to one person who was using an outhouse nearby, and that outhouse was like leaking into the water supply for that pump. Hmm. Um, so basically, because of the cholera epidemic in 1849, at this point, London is up to 2.3 million people. Uh, one of the water companies moved their intake upstream from where most of the main sewage outflow was. And so during the next the cholera epidemic, the third big London cholera epidemic that happened four years later in 1853, the people who were using water from this company got way less sick than people who were using water from other companies that were still having their water intakes downstream of the main sewage outflow. Right. Um, And so then um, in 1855, Um, the government of the city of London ordered all of the water companies to move their intakes upstream of London. Um, So that was a good temporary solution. uh, But the problem was that London kept on expanding and getting bigger. So it wasn't really a permanent solution. Um, Luckily, the city government 
also ordered all the companies to start filtering their water. So, and luckily, filtering the water um, was an effective way to get rid of the bacteria that caused cholera. Great. Um, so that that really helped stop the spread of cholera in London. Okay, but this comes, this takes us to um, my favorite London sewage fact, which is that um, in 1858, um, so at this point, London has about 2.8 million people. Uh, there was an extended drought, which lowered the flow of the Thames so much um, that it created what was called the Great Stink. So in 1858, pretty much all of London actually did smell like sewage. Fun time. Um, just be, yeah, just because there were, was so little water going into the Thames to dilute it, and the flow was so slow um, that, yeah, there was just poop everywhere. Um, and so then, uh, not long after that, in 1865, the city built a bunch of pipelines to dump all of London's sewage far downstream of the city. So then, at that point, the city um, became much cleaner, and the sewage became someone else's problem much further downstream. Great, so, I guess. Yeah, so I guess um, my main takeaway from all of this is that I think the the level of smell has kind of fluctuated a bit over time. And there were certainly times when London did smell a lot like sewage, mm -hmm. um, but I don't think it was a constant problem. And I think in 1590, London was still small enough that it wasn't quite that bad. Right. Um, at least as it was, you know, 100 and 200 years later. Makes sense. Makes sense. So um, it was yeah. probably about 200K, 200,000 people in yeah. 1590-ish. Okay. Yeah, that's not... Yeah. So uh, that's my sewage story. I hope, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. And then, so I did one other piece of research about the history um, related to these episodes um, that I didn't hear you and Mandy talk about, and that's that the School of Night Right. We're not actually sure that it exists. So there's not a lot of firm evidence that mm -hmm. all of these men actually knew each other. There is a lot of contemporary speculation about their connections from from both, I think, that era and then shortly thereafter, people writing about the Elizabethan era. Mm -hmm. But there's not concrete evidence that the School of Night was actually a thing. That was kind of a, a name applied to them after the fact. I did know that about the name, but I I guess I just assumed that it was known that they knew each other. Yeah, apparently not. Well, at least according to Wikipedia. Again, I'm not actually Deborah Harkness, <laughs> but um, that seems to be the case. That is one of the things that I really like about Deborah Harkness. And because I think it's or a lot of the time you think about somebody who's you know, got a PhD in their field and who don't know how to have fun with it, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. And, and, but Deborah Harkness is very much like, let's put some whimsy onto this history. Yeah. And I like yeah, that and about I, her. Yeah. I love, I love too that like, you know, she takes some things that are factually super well known and mm -hmm. then other things, you know, that are maybe, you know, theories or things that are suggested and she's basically like, you know, writing her own historical fan fiction based on what she thinks yeah. it was like. And, and I love it. Yeah, it's great. Also, I forgot how pretty this show is. Like, I think especially the early episodes when they're spending a lot of time in like really dark spaces um, and like dungeons. Mm -hmm. The cinematography is just so good. I don't I have. I haven't checked if there's like different cinematographers this season. Because I liked last season a lot, cinematography-wise, but this season is just, like, elevated. Yeah. Yeah, like, last season wasn't bad, but there were lots of times this season where I felt like I was watching, like, an actual movie, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I don't, some of that might be the bigger budget that they have this season. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, there's um, a few scenes, I think, I can't remember if it was with Diana or Matthew, where you're just looking down from above mm -hmm. and it oh, it's just so pretty. Yeah, I don't know how they ha if they built the interior of where they're staying, if they built it as like a two-story set cuz some some of the shots you really get a feel for the for the space that they're in and they'll like look up from below and look 
down from, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Anyways, it really feels like a real space. Yeah. Well, and they do, they show them going up and down stairs a lot. Yeah. Which, especially after listening to the episode where you and Mandy talked about how, at least in the exterior sets, like the the second story doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, very impressive. Well, the interior would be nowhere near the exteriors. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. Although, I don't know, because like... What about those balcony scenes? I don't know. Uh, no, the um, balcony scenes would be exterior, yes. But yeah. anything interior, they go through a door, they're gone from there. They're in, a, they're in the studio. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess they must have built s- the second story on some of them, right? Because they had to do all those balcony scenes. Oh, yeah. But that is also in like an enclosed courtyard area, right? So they can finish that one area and then gotcha. not finish the rest of it. Which is genius design, again, because then it does mean that they only have to finish that one area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess, I don't know, the rest of the things that I wanted to talk about, I just kind of took some notes. I don't know if I, should I just like run through them and then... Talk about whatever you want to talk about. This is your time to talk about the show Um, and how much you love it (laughs) or don't love it, whatever you're feeling, I guess. I mean, I pretty much loved everything. I did find it really funny that Matthew made a big deal out of Diana hiding the bite mark on her neck, and then they immediately just give up 100%. Like, every in every single scene, when she's going out, her hair is, like, tied back in some fancy style that is exposing the bite mark. Yeah, and only one person ever really says anything about it, and that's Hubbard. Yeah. It's interesting. Which... I mean, it's, I mean, the impression that I get right is just that the style was to have your hair back. So it would have looked super weird if she hadn't done that. But also then like, why make a big deal out of it? I guess they they were, maybe they were just trying to remind us that it exists. Yeah, maybe. But also like they could have given her lace collar thingies. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I am also very grateful that you and Mandy pointed out about not Sophie, because honestly, I didn't even notice that that was the same actress. Neither. um, Sorry, I watched. Well, neither did my sister, who I watched all the episodes with until like the last episode. She was like, oh, that's the same actress. I'm like, it's been 10 (laughs) fucking episodes. I don't know. I mean, you and Mandy commented on this, but like the way she carries her face and like the vibe she's giving off and the hair and the makeup, it's just, it's so different. Oh, yeah, she's a good actress. Yeah, and now I see why they gave her an American accent in the rest of the show. Um, it was, like, to throw you off. Well, the character is American in the books, too. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay, I, I guess I didn't remember that. Oh, I guess, well, this kind of is a science nitpick, but the uh, the scene with the trick hatching, mm-hmm. I thought it was super well done, but that's also way faster than it happens in real life. Like, I have watched enough chickens hatch that from, like, the first peck to actually being able to, like, walk around and, and like, chirp is at least a few hours. It's a magic chicken, Anya. Yeah. Okay, you're right. That's <laughs> that's all, the only excuse you need is it's yeah. a magic chicken. <laughs> I mean, it would have been really, really boring to uh, to have her sit there for that long. So excellent decision. I don't know why, but that just reminded me of, um, I sometimes like purposely get into arguments with people when they say that the vampires in Twilight aren't realistic. And I'm like, oh, you believe in vampires? I didn't know that about you. You believe that they're real and they're walking amongst us? I mean, (laughs) yeah. Uh, The sparkles, that just, it, uh, that's the one thing that really pulls me out of it. I mean, but who's to say, really? Yeah. I have been loving Matthew and Diana so much in the season. Their relationship just feels so real. Like, their fights are all super well-motivated. Like, it's real conflict that you understand where both of them are coming from and, and like, what the real impasse is. Mm-hmm. And then their affection also just feels so real. You can understand, you know, like, you know, they have a common goal that they're working towards together. And they're both so competent. It's just like this awesome power couple dream team, you know, like Mm -hmm. when they are in sync and working towards that, it works so well. I agree. And one of the things that I really love about the fighting that they do have is that it's never misunderstandings that could be solved with just sitting down and talking. Mm -hmm. Because that's, that's, I find that so frustrating. It's so much TV does that. It's like, if you would just 
talk to each other, this wouldn't be happening. Yeah, their conflicts are all always super rooted in like both character and plot. Yes. Yeah. And like uh, you and Mandy talked about this too, but the Matthews eye roll when <laughs> Diana is just deciding to go off and talk. Yeah. Um, is like so good. <laughs> I also like I think it's in episode two. I don't know. They have one fight where you can tell that they they like are disagreeing, but they're not angry at each other. Mm-hmm. And I like that a lot that they're, you know, having a back and forth where they very much disagree, but they're still like laughing and smiling. Mm-hmm. And I like that's just very real to me. Yeah, absolutely. I guess we should talk about Kit and how amazing he is. I think you and I have a differing opinion here, but sure. Well, I mean, he I like TV show Kit much better than I like book Kit. Oh, I do I f- too, yes. Yeah, I feel like book Kit is just irritating whereas like TV show Kit, you kind of you like are annoyed by him, but you also feel pity for him at the same time. I guess I should specify what I said. It's not necessarily that I like TV show Kit better so much as I think he is like genuinely less evil. Mm -hmm. But actually, if he were more evil, I might like him more because that's just me. But eh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He's at least more interesting. In some scenes. Yeah. Um, I did like... In that scene um, that Kit had with Matthew, they're really foreshadowing Matthew's blood rage, I think, in a way that didn't quite come through as much in the book. I mean, I guess we haven't gotten there yet, so maybe I should just cut all that out. No, 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 because this book talks about Matthew having blood rage, so that's fine. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I guess we haven't seen Matthew's blood rage, but... There is, I think you can see him almost go into blood rage in that scene. And so I think that that really helps builds the tension for when it actually happens later on. Yes. I loved Kit and Louisa together. I, I think did too. Louisa is, has some serious Drusilla vibes. You know, I didn't think about that until I read your note here, but yes, absolutely she does. She's, yeah, she's like... Not quite as crazy as Drusilla, but definitely in that direction. Yeah. Um, that, and and is super pulling it off. I definitely feel like that's exactly what they were going for. They even, like, she has a lot of the same sort of features. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to yeah, say they like a, look similar, but if you were to describe them, you'd kind of use the same words. It's like a slight brunette. Um, yeah. Someone who looks very delicate, but is actually incredibly fierce. Exactly, Yes. And so I guess while we're on the topic of Louisa, I asked you this before, and I don't think we really came to any conclusion, but that scene with Louisa and Kit in the pub, Mm -hmm. it seems like she's almost reading him with that kiss in the same way that vampires read people by drinking their blood. I mean, it's possible that she, you know, used her teeth. (laughs) Or, Or that she's just like super intuitive and could tell that I don't know. It just seems like a strong logical leap to go from this man doesn't want to kiss me to, oh, he's clearly in love with my brother. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, genuinely my answer to this is I don't know. I'd be curious to hear what the listeners think. Um, If you have an opinion, please email Kate um, since she has to deal deal with all of that. You can email the podcast (laughs) at desiremaderealpod at gmail.com. But you're the one who has to read the emails. Yes. Well, we'll probably do the emails on our wrap-up episode, which you will be there for. Okay. Um, And then, so the other thing that I really loved about that episode, and I didn't notice that until my second time through, but there's, I think, some parallelism between Kit refusing the kiss from Louisa in the pub and then Matthew refusing to have sex with Diana in the tent Because they both are having their, like, overtures rejected, but but then to, like, really different effects. Because, you know, when Louisa gets rejected, she uses it, I guess, to gain insight into Kit. And then by knowing more about him, they end up, like, bonding and becoming closer together. Mm Mm-hmm. And then when Matthew refuses Diana, it actually like genuinely pisses her off and and like creates this wall and this barrier um, of no intimacy between them. 
So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, I think, and I, it read to me as intentional. I can see, I did absolutely did not pick up on that. We, you haven't heard it yet, but we, we did not discuss the parallelism at all when we recorded. I guess Isabeau is fantastic. Um, Always. Yeah. You know, I think there's a really subtle character arc that they're building with her, you know, as like a tertiary character. Mm-hmm. Um, in the show this season, but with her relationship with Emily and Sarah, the way that they start off super adversarial and then kind of slowly warm up to each other. Yeah. Um, I fucking loved her. This meeting could have been an email snipe at Jaber. Yeah, she delivers it so good. So yeah. Well. Whatever. Oh, and I, I love it, too, that that's just like, I, like a genre of tweet at this point i think and she just like you know she's not a she doesn't strike um she doesn't come across as a super tech savvy modern woman but even she is on that this meeting could have been an email train yeah um i also loved her super deadpan delivery to marcus of well now you're happy you'll have to kill her like (laughs) That was the best. It followed, like, quickly by, well, saved by her lack of imagination. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Oh, like, that casting and performance is just so perfect. I totally believe both her and Philippe as, like, I have been alive for thousands of years. And I, you know, just, like, stone-faced in control of everything. Mm-hmm. And I guess while we're while we're talking about Philippe, yeah, amazing casting, the way he just seems totally chill and in control all the time. He sees everything. He manipulates Matthew and Diana effortlessly. Mm-hmm. Then he like turns into a Jewish mom and tries to feed Matthew. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and his I will not insult either of us by pretending I did not hear that. Like, just incredible. And his bonding with Diana over the books, you know, you can, like, again, like, really feel that genuine relationship developing between them. Yeah. So I guess I did have a couple other historical points to bring up with regard to Queen Elizabeth. Mm. I think you and Mandy commented on her smallpox scars, right, that they added to the actress. I don't think we did. Oh, then maybe I was thinking... Of something else. But yeah, so... I, I Queen- might have retweeted something about it. Okay, yeah. So Queen Elizabeth, um, when she was 29 in 1562, um, she caught smallpox um, and ended up with uh, scars on her face um, that led to her wearing lots of lead makeup. Um, and so <laughs> I kind of got went, went down this rabbit hole because... Her forehead is just so big. Yeah. Like, so big. So I was just Googling Queen Elizabeth's forehead. Why is it so large? (laughs) Um, And there's one theory that basically her hair loss was caused by having, by, like, wearing so much lead makeup because of her smallpox scars. Right. Um, So, yeah, not for sure, but that's one possibility. Um, we do definitely know that having a big forehead was seen as very fashionable and um, women would like pluck their eyebrows and specifically pluck them to be like as low on their brow as possible so that their forehead would look bigger. I'm assuming that with that actress, they put some sort of prosthetic on top of her hair. I would presume also, yes. Yeah. I don't. I'm sure I've seen a picture of her outside of a costume, but I can't I can't bring it to mind. I also really, really loved Marcus and Phoebe in the TV show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm so glad about it because I hated Marcus and Phoebe in the book. Or more specifically, I hated Marcus in the book. He is such a douchebag when he tries to pick Phoebe up. Like, he, he's just like... I think Deborah Harkness was trying to write him as, like, super suave and charming, but he just comes across as, like, really pushy and, and, like, kind of a misogynist douchebag. Um, So, like, 
I don't know. I <laughs> It annoyed me so much that I actually pulled out the book to read some quotes because it made me that mad. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's a pleasure doing business with you, Phoebe, even if we did do it standing up this time. Marcus paused, smiled his charming smile. You don't mind me calling you Phoebe. Phoebe did mind. She rubbed her neck in exasperation, pushing aside her black collar-length hair. Marcus's eyes lingered on the curve of her shoulders. When she made no reply, he closed the box, tucked the miniatures under his arm, and backed away. And then, so skipping forward a little bit, I just wanted you to know that you could wear those shoes again without fearing you'd break your neck, Marcus said innocently. His eyes traveled slowly from her toes over her black leather pumps, lingered on her ankles, and then crawled up the curve of her calf. I like them. Who did this man think he was? He was behaving like an 18th century rake. So, yeah, I just, I like that the TV show, I think, made him actually charming instead of, like, fake, old-school, man-out-of-time charming. Right. Um, You know, he has, he's actually interested in what she's interested in, and then they flirt about nerdy things, and then she shows that interest back um, by, like, Googling his music. You know, like, it's it just felt way more real. Um, like, I can understand why they like each other in the TV show, whereas in the book, it just seemed like he liked her super superficially, and she didn't like him at all. But I love that, you know, like, even right away, they're being really honest with each other, right? Like, in the restaurant... Um, when he comes back from the conversation with Domenico, she just calls him on his bullshit. She's like, so is hot and cold your thing? Right. And then, you know, he responds by being actually kind of genuine with her um, by switching to a topic that he can be genuine with her on. You know, it just, I don't know. I felt like it worked really well. I thought so, too. So what this really is, is we're saying that we outnumber Mandy. Yeah, Mandy's wrong, yeah. I think, is is what we're saying. Um. And I'm sure, like, you know, it's probably been a while since Mandy's read the book, so maybe she just doesn't remember book two. Like, maybe Marcus and Phoebe are actually good in book three, and that's what she's remembering. I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. No comment. Yeah. (laughs) I really liked the stuff with Marcus and Baldwin. I mean, again, everyone hates Baldwin because he's terrible. I mean, a lot of people like Baldwin a lot, but I think that's because of the actor. Oh, I don't know. I I feel like Baldwin does a really good job of tempting Marcus with arguments that are actually persuasive to him, right? right? Like, Marcus is like the Little Mermaid. He wants to be where the people are, and Baldwin knows that and is using it against him. Sorry. (laughs) That was just, like, all I could think about in that scene. The Little Mermaid. Yeah. I'm sure he would appreciate that. Honestly, I think... Well, I don't know about Marcus, but uh, Edward Vermeil would, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and and also, like, the conversation between Marcus and Nathaniel about the knights um, and the fact that Nathaniel's pointing out that, yeah, like, the knights aren't doing shit. There's so much horrible shit going on in the world, and, you know, the knights need a rebrand, as yeah. he so eloquently says it. Um, I also really enjoyed that bit. Yeah, I just, I like that the show, I think, is doing a good job of setting up Marcus to be in a situation where, you know, his choice to either stay loyal to his promise to Matthew or betray it is going to be a real choice. Like, you can you can see that he's conflicted. And then I guess I'll end just with a few comments about Diana her putting on pants in episode five mm-hmm. and then just like staring down all the men is probably my favorite thing from the season so far. It was good. I, I mean, I'm not a big fan of episode five, but it had really good moments in it. Yeah. Um, and I also, you know, trigger warning um, for mentions of sexual assault, but I think the show is leaning much harder on the rape metaphor for the witch interrogating and like trying to steal the memories out of Diana than the book did, both in terms of 
how violent the scene feels mm-hmm. and also the fact that, you know, she's saying, I said no and vocalizing that over and over again and he's ignoring that. And I don't remember it being quite that concrete or clear in the book. I feel like in the book they went in a different direction with it, with um, sort of having it. Because in the book, Diana when Satu captured and tortured her, that was a lot more traumatic for her. And she had mm-hmm. a lot a lot of more like on screen, as it were, PTSD. So I think they kind of mm-hmm. went that direction with it in the book, if I'm remembering correctly. I literally just read the book like last week, but whatever. <laughs> and then obviously in the show, because they wanted to move things along faster, they didn't have her quite as traumatized from the, the mm-hmm. capture, which makes sense for, you know, the pace that they had to keep. Yeah. And so they went with it just being its own trauma. And therefore, I think the metaphor just kind of happens when somebody's trying to yeah. take something that isn't theirs like that. Yeah. And because I guess, you know, they are they're having to motivate her to murder a person. Right. And yeah. we know that that's not something that Diana does lightly, especially compared to all the vampire characters like Isabeau, apparently. Um, And so, yeah, I think. I guess maybe they felt like they had to do that to to motivate her in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, I I can see how that could be really triggering to certain people to watch. But I think the show the show handled it with care. Like it didn't seem callous to me, at least in the way in the way that they did it. Um, and they, yeah, yeah. Well, it's that. It's that thing that a lot of shows have when they're adapting books, like, you gotta adapt what's there. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, there's always, a, well, I mean, this is gonna come up later, but you always have to make a choice about how you adapt something problematic. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it's just, it's something that I want to keep an eye on going forward, is I think the show is making some really intentional statements on certain things um in a way that the book maybe didn't necessarily and this is one of those where i think it's it's really showing like no like this person trying to mess with her mind is a violation of of her like bodily autonomy and personhood Mm -hmm. in a really intense way yeah um and i think that that rape metaphor really works yeah i do too Okay, well, that's pretty much all I had to say. I don't know. Is there anything else you want to ask me? I can't believe you didn't mention Jack. Do you like Jack? Do you not like Jack? No Jack? I do like Jack. He's really adorable. His accent is so cute. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if that is the the actor kid's real accent or if he's putting that on. Um, I genuinely don't know. Yeah. Um, Again, I'm like absolutely not an expert in british accents at all but it seemed really different and like more low class i think Mm -hmm. than all of the other accents that we heard on the show Mm -hmm. um so it seems like it might be something that he was putting on and if so then like kudos to that kid because accents are hard for adults yeah yeah i guess i don't know maybe maybe i'm just a heartless bitch but like i I never felt like that connected to Jack in the book. And so I think maybe some of that carried over to me in the TV show. Like he's he's adorable, but I'm not that emotionally attached to him. Um, I mean, I'll have more to say about him in our next episode because I think uh, I get more attached to him as the show goes on. All right. Um, all right. All right. Yeah. I guess... I do appreciate the role that I think Jack plays in this book of showing Matthew as a paternal character mm-hmm. um, who cares about children um, in like a really sweet, affectionate way. Because I think it kind of does something interesting to that like broody, dark vampire archetype. Yeah. It, like, gives it a softer side in a way that, you know, the the more, like, cliche version of that archetype doesn't. Yeah, they they call that out specifically in the book, which is a, a conversation that they cut out of the show where 
Diana's like, oh, I always just pictured vampires as being like lone creatures. And Matthew's like, do you want to see my vampire family tree? There are hundreds of us. Yeah. And then Diana's like, yeah, I have one friend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I yeah. I, so I like, I like that Jack reveals that other side of Matthew. Um, and that it's it's a little bit of subverting or adding some depth to the the archetype that Matthew is playing. I like that too. And I like I like that it shows I guess something that comes up much, much later, like in book three, is Diana realizing that somehow in the past she managed to be like a part of the family and to have her interests and her training and and she was she balanced herself with it mm-hmm. with all these different aspects of herself and i like i like that jack kind of represents that sort of at home family aspect of diana yeah and that was our bonus episode hope it tides you over and you're wait for episode 6 i think i got that math right <laughs> You can tweet at us at DesireMadeReal. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me and find my other shows on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. I'm Anya, and you can find me on Twitter at StrangelyLiteral. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. And remember to uh, check out all the other Eloquent Gushing shows at EloquentGushing.com. Mandy usually does that bit. I don't know what else she says. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. We love you, Mandy. Yeah. And uh, until we meet again, remember that with every ending, there is a new beginning.